electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. On this special edition of our podcast, investing legend Paul Tudor Jones, he is legendary, ringing an alarm on Wall Street. It's pretty clear to me that inflation is not transitory. It's here to stay. And it's probably the single biggest threat to certainly financial markets. And, And again, probably, I think, to society just in general. And he has big goals beyond his own portfolio. Do you know, since COVID, the top 10% have accrued $17.5 trillion, trillion dollars of wealth. In the bottom 50%, the needles barely move. The long fight against COVID, vaccines, and the growing hope of treatments. Former FDA head Scott Gottlieb. We could have been saving more lives if we had more available supply of these drugs. And what's in a name? That which we call Facebook may soon be rebranded. I have an idea. Let's change our name to Facebook Fay. They'll never guess. It's Wednesday, October 20th, 2021. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back you by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. General Electric, Union Pacific, among the very large companies in the country, recently imposing COVID vaccine mandates in compliance with the Biden administration's rules for federal contractors. Boeing, IBM and Raytheon had already announced plans to comply. Three unions that represented Union Pacific have filed lawsuits over that mandate, saying that such changes needed to be negotiated. We're going to have to talk about Southwest, which had this date set uh, for that mandate. And effectively, you were going to be fired if you didn't do it. Now the date has, uh, I don't don't want to say it's come and gone, but they've taken the date off the table. And it's going to be very interesting to see what happens as a result of that. Right. They said before you'd be put at least on leave and not paid. That's the big question mark at this point. I think December 8th was the the day that they were looking at. Um, And, and, now it's a little unclear exactly what happens if, if you don't comply, if you don't go along with this. Do you continue to work and get paid? And what does that mean in terms of the government contractor issues? Um, yes. Or is this a situation where they, they pay you and maybe they keep you off the front lines? I don't know how that works or how it's going to play out. But clearly, um, this has put Southwest in a, in a very difficult position. And the same thing that you were just saying, again, with these charges coming from the union saying, same thing happened with Southwest, the union saying you need to negotiate with us. You can't just impose this unilaterally. It, it does put the company in a bit of a, a tricky position, though, because they're trying to comply with the order that's come down right. from the Biden administration. Well, it raises, it raises many questions. How, what does the Biden administration do, meaning to enforce these these rules them, themselves? All of the talk that we heard from Southwest over the past two weeks about the delays that took place over that weekend period, they said were not related to any work stoppages. Is there now more of a relation? Clearly something has has happened. Something has shifted uh, in the balance. So I I think this this story is so far from over, uh, for better or worse. Yeah. Facebook reportedly set to change its corporate name to 
technology blog The Verge saying that Facebook will rebrand itself and position the Facebook app as just one of many products alongside Instagram, WhatsApp, and others. Change could be announced next week. You have any, any ideas, Beck? You think you have a thought on what I don't know. It's Facebook- pretty funny. You know, nobody likes us. Congress is coming after us and wants to break Facebook up. I have an idea. Let's change our name to Facebook Fay. They'll never guess. Nothing to see here. Nobody here. I mean, honestly, this is... And by the way, changing your name is not going to make us stop calling it that. I'm still calling Alphabet Google at this point. Good luck with the rebranding. That and Kanye West. Call me yay. Okay. Skeptical. Yeah. I see. Yeah. I mean, honestly, it's odd, and I hear the reasoning behind it. Mark Zuckerberg apparently wants to say that this is going to be part of the multiverse, kind of like... Uh, Guardians of the Galaxy and the Avengers yep. all wrapped up in the in the multiverse. You're going to live in the multiverse and we want to be part of all of those things. But the timing is right. interesting, just given the amount of pressure that's been put on the company. And it seems like it's a dodge, just given everything else that's happening around it right now. Uh, I like multiverse better than metaverse, but we will. We... Metaverse, right. The multiverse is what I'm watching. I, honestly, I'm watching that with the Guardians of the Galaxy and the Avengers. We, we can the call multiverse it the multiverse. Is what they call Maybe it. that should be the name. Up next on Squawk Pod, kinks in the COVID vaccine production line. Dr. Scott Gottlieb on Novavax and a struggle to succeed. The challenges seem to be related to manufacturing, but I think this points back to Operation Warp Speed and what we did and didn't do early on. We'll be right back. People today can spend half their lives over 50. So it's good to be financially ready for what's important to you as you get older, like a family vacation. Or starting your dream business. Welcome to Connie's Coffee. How may I help you? AARP's trusted financial tools can help you plan for whatever your future holds. That's why the younger you are, the more you need AARP. Start planning today at aarp.org slash money tools. What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. Stand Becky by. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Up on Becky. Q. Good morning, everybody. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Andrew Ross Sorkin. Joe is off today. There are some reports this morning that Novavax is having some manufacturing issues with its COVID vaccine. That has the stock under some pretty severe pressure, down by more than 20 percent this morning. Joining us right now to talk about that and much more is Dr. Scott Gottlieb. He's former FDA commissioner and a CNBC contributor. He also serves on the boards of both Pfizer and Illumina. And Scott, we've gotten a little spoiled. We are used to having all of these miracle cures, miracle drugs, miracle vaccines that have been coming down the pipeline. Um, Last couple of days, we've had a few setbacks. Yesterday was Atiyah Pharmaceuticals with its uh, pill, its COVID pill that we were hoping would be approved. Uh, Didn't meet its own internal uh, trials uh, standards that it had been setting. And then today, these concerns about whether or not Novavax can actually mass produce a vaccine that had very strong results. Um, what would you say right now? This, this is a setback. 
Yeah, look, the data was very good on the Novavax vaccine, as you said. The challenges um, seem to be related to manufacturing, and I don't have insight into uh, the problems beyond what I read in the news reports. But I think this points back to Operation Warp Speed and what we did not didn't do early on and maybe some lessons we should learn. Uh, early on, we should have tried to scale the manufacturing processes of some of these uh, companies that were developing vaccines that hadn't done it before. There was a big effort to assist Moderna, and that was very successful. But I didn't see a similar effort to assist Novavax. And early on, you could have, for example, partnered them with another big biotech company like Amgen that had a lot of experience scaling a biotech manufacturing process. And maybe we would have more available supply right now if you had done that. That's the kind of industrial policy that you do in a crisis. That's what Operation Warp Speed was set up to do. Same thing with the therapeutics. We didn't really have an all-hands approach to trying to develop therapeutics. It was a very uh, vaccine-focused effort, Operation Warp Speed, and we really never had enough of the drugs that we need to help combat this virus. And one of the lessons learned is that in the setting of a pandemic, oftentimes your first a therapeutic, your first opportunity is going to be a, a drug, not a vaccine. Eventually, you need a vaccine to bring an epidemic to an end. But the drugs were available earlier, and we could have been saving more lives if we had more available supply of these drugs, including the antibodies. And, you know, one final point I'll say is that we've seen a, a, one tragic death in recent days. We've seen many tragic deaths of older individuals who have underlying health conditions from covid Nobody should be dying of COVID right now. We have therapeutics available that we could be using to prophylax people to prevent these outcomes. I mean, we're not going to prevent every death, but certainly people who are immunocompromised, who we know aren't going to get a robust response from a vaccine, people undergoing active treatment for, for cancer, people who are organ transplant patients who are on high-dose immunosuppressants, we could be dosing them on a monthly basis with drugs like the Regeneron antibody or the Veer antibody or the Lilly antibody. Um, that's pending authorization by the FDA. But we know these antibodies work as a prophylaxis, and you're basically giving an intact immune system to a person to help protect them from the virus. But once again, we don't have enough supply to be able to do that. These were foreseeable problems. I think that there was a monocular focus by Operation Warp Speed on a couple of vaccines, on getting a vaccine. And we didn't look broad enough about trying to industrialize that process for companies like Novavax, as well as focus on therapeutics. Scott, are you, are you suggesting that people who are immunocompromised or cancer patients or something should be getting this treatment all the time, even if they haven't been exposed to COVID, even if they don't have it? Why not wait till they're exposed? I, I would just think adding another drug on top of some of the cocktails they may already be taking to deal with their existing disease could, could complicate things. Well, look, we have pretty good safety data on these antibodies. If you're given an antibody against a virus, um, it's going to largely circulate in your body. It shouldn't have any untoward effects unless you um, are interacting with the virus and then it will attack the virus. But um, we have pretty good safety data now on these antibodies. And we also have clinical data on using them in a prophylactic way. And we have that certainly in the setting of other diseases as well, like Ebola, where we do use these antibodies in a prophylactic way. Um, again, Regeneron has filed for authorization by the FDA for that use. There's a lot of data that's already been submitted to the agency, and it's being made available on a compassion use basis. So if you call the company right now, if you're an immunosuppressed patient, you're a cancer patient undergoing active chemotherapy, you can get the drug on a prophylactic basis on compassionate use, and people are doing that. Um, I, you know, I think it's another example of where we could be moving more quickly to save lives. We're going to be in this Delta surge for a narrow period of time. I, I've said before, I think on the back end of this, prevalence is going to decline. So we're really looking at how do we preserve life in a setting of high prevalence right now that's not going to be with us forever. So you could be using these drugs to protect vulnerable patients. We know, we know that there are patients who are not going to mount an effective response from vaccines. We know who they are. So why aren't we protecting them? 
Scott, in, in terms of, uh, of of using these kind of uh, these these monoclonals and the like, are we how far are we away? And I, clearly, within the window you're talking about, we may not be there. But how far are we away from having full access to that? having lots of it in volume. And is this part of the the future of how this gets treated? Yeah, look, we're in better shape now than we were a year and a half ago with what Regeneron and Lilly and Veer are producing. We've been able to scale this production. We probably aren't at the point where we have enough capacity to protect everyone that I'm talking about, but we probably wouldn't be doing that anyway. Um, you know, I think in the future, as we think about future pandemic preparedness, there needs to be an equal focus at the outset on trying to get therapeutics and scale the production of those therapeutics alongside a vaccine. We may not get as lucky as we did this time in terms of being able to get to a vaccine as quickly as we did. But even though we got to the vaccine very quickly, we still see that the the therapeutics came first. We got the monoclonal antibodies first, and it took time to get the population vaccinated. And in the the interim, you could have been using drugs to protect more people, and we just didn't have them available. So I think this goes back to the planning in the early days. We just didn't have, you know, the foresight to try to do things like help companies. Scott, as you look out 12 months from now or potentially next fall, um, as we start to think about it, and and look, hopefully we'll be past this Delta wave and there won't be uh, another wave. But, you know, as people look at the new Merck drug or things like that, they say to themselves, "Okay, we're going to have the vaccine and then we're going to have these other drugs. What I'm asking is, are we going to get to a point where monoclonals become almost um, part of a, a regimen or routine in the future? It, we may very well get there. I mean, you know, depending on what the data shows and the companies are working on this, Regeneron is running a very um, complex trial right now to look at using the drug in a prophylactic way. They have some data right now to support that. But, um, you know, we may very well use these to protect patients who are undergoing active treatment where we know they're immunosuppressed. If you're undergoing active chemotherapy, uh, you're not going to get a robust response from a vaccine or if you're on high-dose immunosuppressants because you're an organ transplant patient. Even, even with a booster, you still may be functionally uh, immunocompromised and not get a robust response from a vaccine. And that's where you're basically giving someone an intact immune system in a bottle that lasts at least a month. That's what these antibodies are. They're an intact immune system in a bottle that will circulate in your blood for at least a month and probably longer than that. And so you know, we're talking about bridging people through windows of therapy and, and seasonally. I think these drugs may well be used that way in the future. Scott, the other news out this morning is that New York City is now changing its stance on vaccines. It says all public employees for the city, municipal employees, are going to have to be vaccinated. They're taking away the idea that if you don't want to get vaccinated, you can get tested weekly. Um, I didn't realize that that rates of vaccination were as low as 60 percent for firefighters, as low as 70 percent for um, police officers in New York City. So the city's doing that at the same time a company like Southwest is saying, never mind, we're not going to force the vaccination by December 8th, you can still keep your job. It's a little bit of a, of a um, kind of mix and match to try and figure out what's happening, these different sort of reactions, different extremes. Um, what happens next? Look, I think we're doing a good job chipping away at the people who remain unvaccinated. And I, I think local businesses, local communities should have discretion to implement these kinds of provisions. Um, I would like to see people follow through on them once they announce them, because I think if you don't follow through, um, then it, people won't adhere to mandates when they do get put into place. But, you know, I've said before, just as I don't think the federal government should be stepping in to force businesses to, to implement these kinds of mandates, I think they should try to use incentives rather than restrictions to do that. I don't think governors should be stepping in to stop businesses and local communities from doing it when they think that this is what, what the step they need to take to try to protect their workers, protect their community. So I support 
local businesses and local communities doing this. And, you know, New York's been very aggressive. The vaccination rates overall in the city are extremely high. I think over 70 percent of people have been fully vaccinated in New York City. And then there's the UK, which doctors there are, are reaching out, healthcare providers, and saying, please put back some of the provisions, the COVID protections that you had, things like masking, even when you're in a crowd or you know, outside in a crowd. It concerned me to hear that because I keep thinking we're coming through to the other side of this. Is this just a reminder that this disease can kind of twist and turn and we don't know where we stand yet? Yeah, look, there's a big decoupling in the U.K., at least for now, between cases that they're turning over. And they do a lot of testing in the U.K., so they turn over a lot of mild and asymptomatic cases and hospitalizations. And so if that persists, then that may be the new normal, that this virus circulates in the background. But, you know, if you have a population that's been exposed to it and heavily vaccinated, like the U.K. is, you're not going to see the extreme death and disease from it. And that may be tolerable in the future. What we don't know is whether or not some of what's driving the increase in the UK right now is new variants. There is concern around this AY4 variant, and there's actually a subtype. So it's, that's a subtype of Delta. And then there's another subtype of that subtype that has a very specific mutation in it that changes the spike proteins. Now, eight, it was 8% of cases in the UK when it was last reported. But when we know that those reports are lagging, so it's not clear whether or not that's what's driving some of this increase. And we need to figure that out. We should be better at this right now, figuring these things out. Dr. Gottlieb, thank you. It's always great to see you. Thanks a lot. Cheese will be next. Coming up. We have a Federal Reserve Board that are inflation creators, not inflation fighters. Paul Tudor Jones, the investing pioneer, expert, guru, legend on the Fed, the markets, and the cost of the pandemic. I keep thinking, what is America without a vibrant New York? This is the cultural and financial center of this country. Squawk Pod, back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. We're back. This is Squawk Pod. Billionaire investor Paul Tudor Jones founded the Tudor Investment Company in 1980. His asset management firm and hedge fund has about $10 billion in assets under management. He's also the founder of the Robin Hood Foundation. No, not that. Robin Hood, the largest anti-poverty organization in New York City. Jones joined us on Squawk Box in June. And at that time, he took issue with the Federal Reserve's continuing pandemic policies that, in his view, were indifferent to rising consumer prices. Things are absolutely bad-ass crazy. The Fed, he said, was too nonchalant, too sanguine about inflation. And that would spell trouble for Fed Chair Jay Powell and for the rest of the economy. Today, a few months later, Paul Tudor Jones is ringing the same bell. Louder. With that, here's Andrew Ross Sorkin. We are fortunate to have an expert investor with us right here on the set. I want to welcome Paul Tudor Jones. I got downgraded from legendary to expert. 
You want it? We can call, we'll do that. We do no, legendary I, I like before. Ex, I like expert a lot better. It always made me uncomfortable. Okay, well, let's, let's do expert because I think right now <laughs> we all need a little bit of expertise. Everybody's trying to figure out where we are in this market and in this particular cycle. We had some great earnings from some of the banks. We have some inflation fears, supply chain issues. We have energy on the move. What are you doing? Well, I think the thing that to me is the number one issue facing the man the street investors is inflation. And it's pretty clear to me that inflation is not transitory. It's here to stay. And it's probably the single biggest threat to certainly financial markets. And, and again, probably, I think, to society just in general. So this 5.4% CPI is a real eye-opener. It's the highest CPI we've had in 30 years. And, of course, it's going to go higher here in the next few months as energy feeds through it. So for an investor in particular, most of this audience, it's absolute death for a 60-40 portfolio for a long stock, long bond portfolio. So the real question is, how do you defend yourself against it? How persistent will this be? And um, what does the outlook hold? And there's a combination of structural and cyclical forces that right now are all rolling in the same direction to say that inflation can be much worse than what we fear. So let's just start with the cyclical forces first. We have the demand side of the equation, right. uh, and that would be M2. M2's grown $5.4 trillion since, um, since, the, since the pandemic began. That's $3.5 trillion dollars greater than what it normally would have. That three and a half trillion, 16% of GDP, just sitting in liquid deposits that could go into stocks or crypto or real estate or be consumed. So that's a huge amount of dry powder that's just sitting there waiting to be utilized at some point, which is why inflation's not going to be transitory. So that's, that's, that's the first big I think cyclical issue. Also, don't forget, we just raised uh, another demand factor. Would be we just raised benefits for Social Security retirees as well as military, about 75 million by 5.9 percent. That's just more fuel right. to the inflationary fire. The, the second big component would be the wage pressure that we've got, and the easiest way to see that is obviously job offers relative to the unemployed. We're 10.4 million job offers, 7.7 million unemployed. It's clear that we have a structural issue in our labor force that's not going to be solved by 0% interest rates and quantitative easing. So um, if you take those two factors and then overlay the structural issues, uh, and there are four big ones, the structural issues, you really paint very a very bleak picture on inflation. The structural issues are, first and foremost, we have a Federal Reserve Board that are inflation creators, right. not inflation fighters. So and that is a huge, huge deal. But let me just ask you then: Are you is this a warning to Jay Powell? Is that what you is that the suggestion, or is this a warning to investors about how to trade around this issue? Listen, I'm. First and foremost, I'm concerned about the future of this country. So clearly, I think we have maybe the most inappropriate monetary policy 
that we've seen, maybe in my lifetime. Um, we are adding stimulus. We are still quantitative easing when we should be doing just the, the exact opposite. And we're taking for granted and treating inflation very, very lightly. If you go back, I, what, what, what I think bothers me so much about this particular set of central bankers and all those that parrot what the Fed are doing is they're ignoring the lessons of history. You go back and start reading about the late 60s and early 70s, you had, you had three central bankers, uh, William, William Martin, Arthur Burns, finally right. Paul Volcker. You had two presidents. Do you realize 1974, Gerald Ford called, uh, addressed a joint session of Congress and said, we're at war, except it's not against humans. This, war, this, this enemy is invisible, but it threatens our society, our home, our people, our life, liberty, and values. A joint session of Congress because of inflation. And that's when he started the famous whip inflation now. So we're just treating it with this cavalier attitude when we shouldn't be. And again, we're ignoring because we haven't seen it Right. Four decades. Do you have any expectation that Jay Powell will not be renominated for this position? Do I have? I, I think. He and if so, I, I think he probably will be. Um, I don't think he's necessarily the right person to deal with the circumstances that we have facing us. For instance, uh, you know, a, a quote widely attributed to Albert Einstein is: "Is the people that solve the problem won't be the ones that create the necessary." conditions for it to exist. So again, this group of Fed, uh, of Fed spokespeople, they created right. average inflation targeting. The goal was to get inflation above 2%. Well, guess what? They won that game in a blowout. The problem is when you're running the Fed, you don't want to blow out in either direction. Blowouts are bad because it creates in people's minds, these expectations that things will continue. And the best person uh, who addressed that was Paul Volcker in 2015, said if we follow mathematical models, then what happens is we lose sight of the fact that human emotions are hugely impactful on the way people will continue to believe. So if the, if the inflation genie is out of the bottle, which it is right now, and we don't immediately shift to attack it. We run the risk of getting back into the 70s where it was the single most important issue for multiple presidents, multiple Fed chairmen. It was per pernicious and persistent. Becky's got a question for you. Bex? Paul, hi, Becky. Uh, hi, Paul. It's great to see you. Um, you say that you don't think Jay Powell is necessarily the best person for the job, but if it's not him, it's very likely going to be someone who is more dovish um, and less well, likely to take be, on the things. That would be a disaster. Again, we have a 5.4% CPI. If you just kind of think about, if you just think about mathematically, let's look at the 100-year history of CPI. There's a huge hysteresis effect. What happens to begin with uh, has a huge tendency to continue. So if we just mathematically went through, if we just mathematically went through what CPI is going to be in 2022, you'd say, okay, just based on history, it's 4%, 3.7 in 2023, and 3.5 in 2024. That's the hysteresis effect of CPI. So this next meeting, 
I think is the most crucial meeting for this Fed. And uh, I would say, well, we didn't have 2008. We didn't have the pandemic. X those two. This is just as important because now they're facing for the first time the other right. side of the dual mandate. Assume, right? Assuming you're right. Assuming all everything you just said is is 100 percent spot on. What are you doing about it as an investor? There's a lot of folks who are watching you say this right now, and they're saying, well, okay, now what? Well, first thing we need to do is we need to see, and, and please, I don't, want to, I don't want to diminish any of the current uh, Fed officials and what their ability to pivot and change is. But the, the history of the past, say, dozen years is this, this belief in forward guidance, right? And forward guidance is assumes a linear world. It assumes that the world is a train as opposed to a roller coaster. You're married, right? Mm -hmm. So marriage is a joyful ride, but it's really scary at times, right? That's all prices are, is just a reflection of human nature and behavior. And so the idea that that we can have four guidance in this linear world is crazy. You have to be reactive and you have to be forward thinking. And so right now we have a material event, which is we have inflation and we don't see any end of it in sight. And so at this meeting, what's the reaction going to be? What are they going to do? And, and this one's a really interesting meeting because for the first time, there was an economist YouGov poll that was just released that said, the majority of Americans think the number one economic issue is rising prices of goods right. and services, two to one over unemployment. So now we know what Americans think is the biggest issue, and we're going to see how they respond. If, if they try to fight the last war and do the taper they did in 2013, well, well we're going to go ahead and ease off the pedal for the next six or eight months. Well, that's just the wrong policy prescription. We're so different than 2013. 2013, commodity prices were down on the year. We're up 50 to 100 percent. So to answer your question, we have to watch what this Fed does. If they try to play from the old playbook that we're going to slow and gradual, double down on every inflation trade, double down on long commodities, long tips, break-evens, uh, long Aussie in and FX world, um, long, and, and you don't want to own fixed income. You do not want to hold that whatsoever because what they're, say, what they're telling you by their actions is that they're going to be slow and late to fight inflation, and somewhere down the road, somebody will have to come in much the same way Paul Volcker did. Right. And put the hammer down. You know who? You know who originated take away the punch bowl. That was William McChesney Martin. He originated take away the punch bowl. And this guy was inflation fighter. And look what he spawned. One of the things you've talked about, talked about it. I want to say about eighteen months ago on our air, probably March, in the, right, maybe right when the pandemic was, was hitting, was your interest in Bitcoin as as a hedge. As Bitcoin in, be a great hedge. As an inflation hedge. Crypto will be a great inflation hedge. Is it still there. a hedge at, at these prices? Listen, um, I said then, I said now, I've got crypto in single digits in my portfolio. 
Uh, I have a small trading position in our fund. I do think we're moving into an increasingly digitized world. Clearly, there's a place for crypto, and clearly it's winning the race against gold at the moment, right? Um, so, so, yes, I would, I would think that would also be a very good inflation hedge. It would be my preferred one over gold at the moment. Paul, on that note, um, you, you saw that Bitcoin ETF that, that started trading yesterday, the one based on Bitcoin futures. There were a lot of seasoned investors who said, you know, th- that could be an, an issue. They, they like Bitcoin, the underlying issue, quite a bit better than the ETF because they worry that in, in times of trouble um, that the ETF would, would trade at a steep discount to what you'd see the actually underlying issue. What, what would you say to that just to investors who are thinking, OK, I, w- I want to get into Bitcoin. How do I do it? I think a better way to get in would be to actually own physical Bitcoin, to take the time to learn how to uh, own it and carry it. I think the ETF will be fine. I think the fact that it's SEC approved should give you great comfort. I'm not a real expert in ETF, so I don't want to I don't want to. But, wanna... but do you believe that this is this means that regulators are saying either blessing uh, implicitly or otherwise that crypto is here to stay? I think crypto's here to stay. Look, this is the United States of America, right? The reason we're the most dominant economic power in the world is because we unleash our individual entrepreneurialism and creativity. And you're seeing China do the exact opposite, right? That place is on economically a slow boat to the South Pole. And as long as the U.S. can continue to unchain our entrepreneurs, we're going to always be the dominant position. I want to talk about Robinhood, but I want to ask you finally about equities, in particular FANGs and, and big techs, and so many of our viewers are in that space. Would you own that right now or no? So equities are interesting. They're certainly, certainly an inflationary world. They're a, they're a much better bet than fixed income. Neither one of them are a great bet. So just look, the Fed says the neutral rate. They've forecasted it. God knows how many years now. The neutral rate's 2.5% when you're not adding stimulus, right? So if we get to 2.5%, which is where we have to get to for their neutral rate, that's 250 basis points higher than where we are right now. The PE will not be 23, 26, depending upon how you're looking at it. If they actually have to get restrictive, which would be 200 basis points above 2.5%, to stop inflation because it is persistent, well, then you're talking about a PE of 17 or 18 and the stock market's down 35%. You have to, if you're an investor in stocks, we need to watch what the Fed does. Down 35%. Well, I'm just saying that's what your average PE would be if if, uh, short rates were between 3 and 4%. And that's where I think we'll be. I think a year from now, two-year rates will be 100 basis. So you're calling for the equity market to be down that, that much? No, I said the average P.E. I see. would be that. So just so we're clear, right now, the flows and equities are incredible from all this dry powder. Right. Uh, the buybacks alone are going to probably average in 1.2 to 1.5 trillion a year. It's a huge amount of flows going in the stock market. So I would just be careful that if we actually begin to address the most important and most pressing problem we have in the dual mandate, clearly you're going to get up P.E. compression. Clearly the stock market's not going to go up as fast and may go down. I want to talk about tonight. 
um, because it's a big anniversary. It's a big moment. Um, you've got the annual Robin Hood benefit event. It happens this evening. It helps fight poverty in the Big Apple. And it comes now 20 years uh, to the day after the concert for New York City, which was held in the wake of the 9-11 attacks. And uh, it's, it's a big moment. Well, we chose this day for our benefit because it's 20 years to the day of the anniversary we had for the concert for the city of New York. That concert was held on behalf of the victims of 9-11, and that concert was, um, had the greatest assemblage of, of, of artists of all time. So if I think about now, here we are 20 years later, suffering from another external shock like we did then. There's so many similarities and so many differences. The, the, the big difference is, is that instead of 31,000 homeless that we had in 2001, we've got 52,000 homeless a day. Instead of uh, 1 million food insecure, we've got 2 million a day, which means people are skipping meals just so their kids can eat. So if I think about joblessness, we were 7% back then, we're, we're 10% now. So clearly we have uh, a real challenge in front of us. But with that challenge, we have not only a chance to reshape the city, we have a chance to reshape ourselves. So I started doing this thing a while back called the Gratitude Challenge. And I recommend it to everybody. You wake up and you think about something you're grateful for. Your wife, your family, your dog, your house, your city. So I've been doing a lot on New York recently. When I think about New York, man, I'm grateful for, I'm grateful for New York pizza, which in my last meal, that would be the first part. I'm grateful for Plaza Hotel, because that's where I got engaged to my wife. Lenox Hill, where I had my kids. Museum of Natural History is my favorite place in all of New York. So it's not just what I'm grateful for, but also how I show my gratitude. How do I show that? And when it comes to this city, whether you live here or not, I keep thinking, what is America without a vibrant New York? Can you imagine uh, no Statue of Liberty or no Broadway or no ball drop on New Year's Eve? This is the cultural and financial center of this country. And for somebody like me, heck, I, I couldn't get a job in Tennessee trying to be a banker, so I came to New York, and look what it did for me. God, I never could have enjoyed this level of success. So <clears throat> when I think uh, when I think back, I always remember this quote from Mark Twain. He said, 20 years from now, it's not the things that... Uh, that you did that you'll be disappointed about. It's the things that you didn't do. So 20 years from now, when I, when I have, I hope I have grandkids, when, when, I, when, I, when my grandkids said, Dad, Granddad, what'd you do during COVID? I, I'm not going to say, well, I sat in my room with the mask on and, uh, and made a lot of money and got rich. Do you know, since COVID, since 20 months, the top 10% have accrued $17.5 trillion, trillion dollars of wealth. In the bottom 50%, the needles barely move. So question is, how do we show our gratitude? And tonight, your co-host, Mike Novogratz, 
because I see him on this show more than you do most of the time. Anyway, <laughs> he stepped up yep. and gave 25 million bucks as a challenge grant. Bitcoin's been good. Well, I'm just saying pound for yep. pound, he's one of the kindest, most generous people uh, I know. And the question is, how many more heroes are going to step forward? Speaking of heroes, I'd just like to uh, talk about Mike Moran. Mike Moran was a fireman who went down in the towers. And Excuse me, he didn't go down. One of his, his brother went down, along with so many other great firemen and police and first responders in the tower. He went down, and here's a clip from that. I yep. think he was introducing the, the Let's who. show that clip, because that was from 20 years ago. Yeah, tonight. Tonight at that concert. Yeah. In the spirit of the Irish people, Osama bin Laden, you can kiss my royal Irish ass. That's the spirit that this city and this country has. And we need to come together again for the second renaissance of the greatest city in the world. And I beseech everyone, go to RobinHood.org and donate. We will do more to help this city to those, the least among us who are left behind than anything else. And that is going to give you joy in life. Can you imagine anything more joyful than helping others? So anyway. You're crying. You're making me cry. That clip will, will do it to you. But it's a great cause. And we appreciate you being here, as always. And I hope to do that again with you very, very soon. Thanks so much. Thanks, Becky. Hey, Paul, I just got to say um, thank you for everything you do for the city. Thank you for highlighting this. Um, and thank you for the reminder to everybody to wake up every day and think about what you're grateful for. Um, I think if more people did that, it'd be a better place. Um, but thank you, Paul. Thank you all. And that's it for the podcast today. On our rundown tomorrow, the long, long road to the public markets for WeWork. Shares of the office-based company are expected to begin trading as part of a SPAC transaction on the New York Stock Exchange under the ticker WE. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. You can follow Squawk Pod on your favorite podcast app. And give us a rating or write a review on Apple Podcasts. That helps other listeners discover Squawk Pod. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. 